Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, we have a great one today. And this time, I really, really mean it. And I'm serious. I have uh, Lori Garrett a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's been writing about infectious diseases for decades and decades, and she's just amazing. And Andy Slavitt is on with her. You know Andy. He's the former head of Medicare and Medicaid. And the whole podcast is basically on the vaccine, the vaccine which many of us fully expect Trump to announce and release sometime in late October. And... uh, We discuss every aspect of that, and it's a pretty chilling discussion in a variety of ways. But I'm serious, you know, for a change, this is one you are really, really going to want to listen to. Uh, It's been quite a couple of weeks. Just before I taped this part of my podcast last week, uh, we learned the stuff about Trump calling the men and women in the military especially those wounded or captured, called them uh, losers and suckers. And of course, this was no big surprise to most of us because in 2015, Trump famously called John McCain a loser and said he was only a war hero because he got captured. I guess what Trump didn't understand is that... um, Less than a year into his five and a half years in captivity at the Hanoi Hilton, he was offered early release by the North Vietnamese so they could get a propaganda victory. You see, McCain's father was an admiral and had command of of Pacific forces. So if McCain, who was being tortured and starved, had taken early release before other prisoners who had been there longer, well, then it would have been a big propaganda victory for the North Vietnamese. And McCain knew that. He chose to stay. And he was there for another four and a half years. That's a hero. That is a hero. You know, I have a a slightly different take on Trump and the horrible things that he has said about our troops. And you know that he did say to John Kelly when they were standing there at at Kelly's son's grave at Arlington Cemetery, you know he said, what's in it for them? Because if he hadn't said that, then Kelly, of course, would say something. His silence is deafening with this. So we know that he said that. Now, a lot of people think they understand why Donald Trump could not understand what was in it for them, Uh, you know, that he just can't grasp why anyone would ever do anything that didn't redound to their own personal benefit. And I'm sure that was part of it, that that's the kind of transactional thinking that you'd expect from a malignant narcissist like him. But I believe it goes deeper than that, because what was also happening is that Donald Trump, surrounded by a, a forest of grave stones, actually feels threatened because anyone who is acknowledged as a hero could in Trump's mind steal from the adoration that he as the most important man in the world desperately needs to be basking in every second of his life and sharing the spotlight with anyone even dead people makes him not just uncomfortable but downright resentful Let's go to the Woodward book and the fact that Trump knew how serious the coronavirus was all along and didn't act. But still, he says he's done a great job. And you you hear him again. He said this week, again, we saved millions 
of U.S. lives. Millions. And I just, let's look at what that means. First of all, just millions. That's plural. It could be anywhere from 2 million at a bare minimum, all the way up to just each and every 331 million of us. That would have been a real disaster. But let's uh, be optimistic about this. Let's say he uh, he just saved two million. Only two million uh, dead Americans aren't dead because of his great work. So that means that instead of a mere one hundred ninety-four thousand dead Americans out of nine hundred four thousand globally, we'd have two million one hundred ninety-four thousand dead which would be just over three times the current total fatalities worldwide. Now, Mr. President, I don't know what the guy who took your SATs got in his math, but if you subtract 194,000 from the 904,000 worldwide, you get 710,000 dead in the rest of the world, which is just shy of a third of the 2,194,000 American dead that we would have had if you, Mr. President, had, had just hadn't done anything. Now, I don't know exactly uh, what the president counts as the actions he took. I suppose he could mean anything he did. Maybe he means that he wouldn't have done anything, that he just would have continued doing rallies and just done nothing. We're going to be talking about the vaccine that he most likely will release uh, prematurely uh, with Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt, and it really is a great one. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, well, we've got a great one uh, today for a change. Two fabulous guests. Uh, if you're a fan of the podcast, you probably know Andy Slavitt. Uh, here for the fourth time. Congratulations, Andy. Thank you. Andy was the head of Medicare and Medicaid during the last two years of the Obama administration. I've made the argument. That he saved the ACA. He's the guy that got the exchange working after it crashed uh, right the, at the beginning there in October of 2013. So welcome, welcome back again. Thank you, Al. Okay, and I am absolutely thrilled to have Lori Garrett with us, one of the most influential uh, writers on infectious diseases. In fact, she won the Pulitzer Prize in explanatory journalism. Lori. I don't think there's anyone more qualified to explain explanatory journalism than you. Could you just explain what explanatory journalism is? Explanatory journalism is where all the guilty journalists dump the rest of us because they know that we deserve the prize, but they think very poorly of us. Okay, good. I've written that down, so finally know 
What explanatory? I thought it was something like that, actually. So uh, you just wrote an article, Lori, in Foreign Policy, right, That about the vaccines and about whether we can trust them or not if one comes out before uh, the election. And uh, can we? Can we uh, trust a vaccine that comes out? Say, what would be a good date? November 1st? (laughs) Well, that's their target date, November 1st. That is the Mm -hmm. date that the Trump administration instructed the CDC to instruct every single governor in the United States and territories to be ready for mass distribution and to, by October 1st, have sent CDC their master plan for how they will vaccinate their population for approval and then actually roll it out courtesy of a private contracting firm called McKesson on November 1st. But we saw a real blowback from political leaders and, of course, the public generally and the public health community saying, wait a second, how in the world can you imagine that you're going to have a safe, proven, effective vaccine in the next 50 plus days? Uh, That's just inconceivable. And nine major vaccine makers jointly released a statement promising the world that they will not go along with being shoved out the door hastily and that they will indeed do adequate safety and so on. And then AstraZeneca, which had the most promising vaccine, let it be known that they're stopping their trial temporarily because they've seen a side effect in one of the trial participants. Let me stop and just say, ask you, how many vaccines are in the research pipeline? Well, if you count the ones that are rather dubious from places like Russia and you put them all in the pile, it's close to 200 are in the pipeline worldwide. Uh, there are basically 10 leading contenders that the United States government is looking at. Most of them are made in America, but there's also AstraZeneca made in in the UK and a joint American-German product that is probably at the front of the line right now, jointly made by Pfizer and a German company. There are many, many, many products out there, all in various stages of testing, all the way from just in the laboratory to already in 30,000 trial subjects in phase three trials. There is a political dimension to this, obviously. And Andy, I just want you to speak to that. I don't trust Donald Trump. Do you? (laughs) He has um, developed a track record here, which I think we should be paying attention to. I mean, first of all, the FDA scientists, the civil service scientists, are more than capable of running this EUA process, evaluating data, looking at adverse events uh, if they occur. I think, Lori, the, the adverse event for this AstraZeneca trial was a, was a swelling of the spine uh, in one uh, participant, uh, which they're investigating. And these things happen. They come up. That's why you do these large-scale trials. And you want a trial to be accelerated, but you don't want it to be rushed. There's a long tradition at the FDA of letting the civil service scientists do their work And while they can be technically overruled by the FDA commissioner, the secretary of HHS, or the president, it generally does not happen for a lot of good reasons. In this particular case, we've seen a president who has at least twice interfered in the FDA process, once for a treatment called convalescent plasma, and once for a um, a hydroxychloroquine um, example. So he set up a dubious record of pushing the FDA And the FDA has caved on those occasions. So that's why Americans are nervous. That's why the blowback that Lori has talked about is occurring, because he's interfering with science. And everybody wants a vaccine, but nobody wants a vaccine that other people can't trust. Because a vaccine that comes out, no matter how good it is, if people don't take it, then we will prolong COVID-19 for a long, long time. Would you take a vaccine Lori, that uh, the president introduces on November 1st? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay, now, uh, most Americans probably don't know as much about this as you do. That's fair to say, right? So could you explain uh, to uh, Americans who don't know as much about vaccines and vaccine testing and protocols 
why you wouldn't take it. Well, there's several things going on here. First, as Andy told you, there's been at least two other instances where the White House has pressured the FDA to reverse its position on uh, convalescent therapy and on uh, hydroxychloroquine, both of which overwhelmingly are shown not to work. It's not just that this administration has pushed the FDA to prior times to um, overrule the better judgment of its own scientists and of the NIH. Um, it has also pushed to strip the ability of the FDA to analyze testing kits and determine whether or not they give valid results. That has now been destroyed. So it's been technically moved over to the office of the secretary of HHS, Alex Azar, but uh, what it in truth means is that now the market is getting flooded with test kits of all sorts, all various reliabilities. If you are a governor and you're trying to figure out which one to order for your state, it's a bloody mess now. And the FDA is no longer allowed to tell you this one's superior to that one or this one fails to actually identify appropriate antibodies or appropriate antigens or appropriate RNA nucleic acid markers. Meanwhile, it's part of a larger package because we've now seen the White House order the CDC to reverse itself on schools, on testing, on a whole set of, of criteria that are essential for individuals and politicians to understand what to advise for their populations. And they ordered the EPA to reverse its own decision on the safety of a disinfectant for airplanes so that American Airlines could get back in the air. And they released one that is known to cause eye and face damage. Let me ask Andy something, because we're talking about all these different agencies within these public health agencies, uh, including the EPA but and the FDA and uh, uh, the CDC. And there appears to just be a lot of the kind of chaos that Lori is describing there. And this is a political thing. So as someone who is head of Medicare and Medicaid, what are you seeing there in terms of the, the politics of these agencies that we normally just feel like they're rock solid? You can really rely on the CDC. You can really rely on the FDA. What's going on here? I think to try to make a distinction to the public, which is to say, you know, there's 17,000 career civil servants in the FDA. They are in every political administration. Um, they are not driven by politics. They are driven by science. There are thousands and thousands of epidemiologists inside of CDC. And these are good people. I mean, these are some of the best people in the world at what they do. Um, they're not always right, but their institution normally has processes that, that has all the kinds of checks and balances you'd like to see so that you make the best decisions possible. And they won't always get it right. We're always going to be mad at the FDA for either not going fast enough or being too sloppy. So they're always in that, in that spot anyway. What I don't want to do is I don't want people to lose confidence in these institutions because long-term, we really, really need them. I mean, just close your eyes and imagine we were putting drugs on the market and we had no FDA or we had no epidemiologists in the CDC. So if we have problems with them and they made mistakes and they clearly have, as Lori said, we need to reform them. Uh, but these are good long-term institutions, good long-term people. Now your job when you come in to run an agency like this, like I did at CMS, normally your job, your most important job is to protect the scientists from the politics. The most important thing you can do is let them do their technical work and protect them from the politics. And if you can't do that, you're in a troubling situation. And what we have today is a president who will tweet that the FDA is part of the deep state and the FDA commissioner, quite honestly, folded like a tent um, Han, the next day. Stephen Hahn. Han, Stephen Hahn. And that was on the uh, convalescent plasma therapy. Didn't he say <laughs> that you were like 35% less fatalities <laughs> if you took it? He made a rookie mistake. It's a public health statistics 101 class mistake that, you know, a professor would gladly give you an F for, yeah. uh, in, in which he looked at the differential between two data points and said, those two data points are 35% apart. That means there's a 35% benefit to the health. That was completely bogus. 
And he did mea culpa to his benefit. He did say, oops, I got that wrong. Uh, I misstated that. And then they turned around and they fired the entire public relations team in the hierarchy there at FDA. I want to say something to what Andy just said, because it's a very important point you're making that we don't want people to distrust these agencies in the long run. In every single pandemic and epidemic role-playing exercise I was in over the last 30, 35 years, where we imagined, you know, disease X has shown up and here's what the fire department will do and here's what the public health community does, et cetera. None of us ever imagined a scenario ever in which we would have a president who lies, who is incompetent, and who uses his political power to force other agencies to basically misbehave, to go against their own mandate and their own charter. So we're in a situation now where uh, very good people, the civil servants inside these institutions, if they're at CDC, they've been muzzled. They've been gagged. They can't talk to the public. They can't tell you what they know. If they're inside EPA, they've been told climate change is off the table and here's another 25 topics you're not allowed to ever discuss. And if they're at FDA, they're being told the president says this works. You will now say it works, period. End of story. This is not the way to protect the health and safety of the American people. This is the way to protect a political agenda of a president carried out by his cronies that he's appointed to run the various agencies. I would even put it this way. The job of the FDA, most importantly, is to explain the claims that are valid on a given drug precisely. So if you were to come to the FDA and do what Commissioner Hahn did and say, hey, this drug, 35 out of 100 people, lives will be saved, when in fact the number is, is like, well, five, six, seven percent, and he grossly exaggerated it, you wouldn't just face a, a mea culpa. You might face civil penalties. You might face criminal penalties. Their job is to be the most precise possible in communicating this. And they know for a fact that the one stage they have to do it right is the first time they do it. And they did it at a presidential press conference. So Stephen Hahn, you know, maybe he made a mistake. If I were conducting an observational study on Stephen Hahn and Donald Trump, I would say my observation is he knowingly lied. You know, Lori just said you get an F in college if you made a mistake like that, or I guess in graduate school, maybe. But what was his background? How did he make this basic a mistake? You know, he, he ran the National Cancer Institute, which is a part of FDA. It's not science that he has, a, he has a problem with. What he has a problem with is understanding the big picture. And let me just explain what I mean by that specifically. Vaccine effectiveness and vaccine trust are equal. What I mean by that is you can have a vaccine that is only 30% effective, but if it's 100% trusted, you will get immunity on 30% of your population. Likewise, if you have a, a vaccine that is 100% effective, but it's only 30% trusted, you get the same outcome. So the FDA's role is not just to evaluate the efficacy of a vaccine. It's to be highly, highly trusted and to set up a process and say, this is our standard. And then under pressure from the president, say, well, we're not going to follow that standard. That does so much damage, by the way, not just to this vaccine, but to all the vaccines that we count on uh, in our modern society. Well, and I would add that when Han made that statement and backed up the president, now let's keep in mind the timing on this. It was on the eve of the opening of the RNC so that the president would be able to boast in his speeches to the RNC convention, hey, we've got a treatment. At that time, Han said, everything I'm saying to you, quote, is based upon sound science. We totally, meaning the, the, the entire FDA, we totally support the EUA. That's the emergency use approval. And quote, the timing was totally based on when we got the data and these are the facts. And everything he said around those quotes turned out to be wrong. I mean, I have to think that if you were head of the National Cancer Institute, you have some experience in evaluating studies, wouldn't you? But you see, he claims, in retrospect, that it was his PR guys that gave him the wrong information, <laughs> which, okay, if that's true, then um, for something this momentous, if you're trained in the sciences, why didn't you look at the real data yourself? Why would you trust a PR hack with no science training 
who came out of the Donald Trump school of lying. Uh, so everything about it to me smells to high heaven. It, the, the timing on it, everything. I just think this was all decided by the White House. What does this portend to, uh, as we head toward the election, of the strong possibility that the president will announce that there is a vaccine and that people are going to start getting it, I don't know, November 1st or well, something like I that? I think it depends on which of the main contenders that are actually in phase three trials already will be in a position to go to the already announced October 22nd FDA meeting that has been summoned experts to assess and decide which vaccine, if any, should get approval. Um, And this would be an emergency use approval in which you're already acknowledging that all the necessary data won't actually be there. You're flying um, a little bit blind. I think this is a matter of understanding Donald Trump. And so what I would say is one needle, one arm, one camera, like man, woman, TV, whatever. Um, I don't think, I don't think he, so like a camera in a production facility, watching vaccines being made and then a vaccine, you know, ideally in the arm of, of some person of color shot in the arm. And, you know, look, if it's not approved, he might just do that with someone who's taking the trial and might, you know, just even claim that they're, you know, the, that the FDA deep state is holding this up from getting into people. He is no doubt engineering something like that. And I think what Lori and I are saying is, you know, that's politics, but the fact that, but, you know, that willing accomplices running our major agencies um, is really problematic. And so I think people are going to need to, to scream out loudly. The, as, as Lori, I think, has done a really nice job of saying that the data will not be clear enough but what you, what they will very likely do is say, well, let's cherry pick. Let's take these 30,000 people. And if we only look at the people who are between 25 and 30 and who are have X and Y level of exposure and have and, and these are people that have some risk, some higher risk, let's convince the FDA to say that the benefit outweighs the risk. And, you know, what, what I like to say is, you know what else? The benefit outweighs the risk. Water. Water. So the FDA could approve water. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a little break uh, for this word from our sponsor. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, we're back. We're here with Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt and talking about the coming vaccine, premature or not. Okay, we keep talking about the FDA. We keep talking about these agencies, these public health agencies in the United States. This is a global problem. <laughs> we we have... Well, not from our perspective. I'm going to have to correct you, Al. It's the official opinion of the White House that there's nothing global about this at all, except if we want to cherry pick and buy up the supplies. 
of products made outside the United States for the benefit of the American people. But no, we're refusing to participate in the global effort. Um, there is a special 172 nations signed in on a joint effort to come up with a vaccine with agreement uh, to make it affordable and available to the entire world, not just to the rich countries, and to not nationalize supplies, uh, to not prioritize their own people over the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. The United States said, nope, we're not in there. We're not in there partly because it's controlled by the WHO, and we've already said screw the WHO. But we're also not in there because, no, 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 we're not going to make any such commitment at all. We're not going to agree to abide by any rules of the game other than our people first, MAGA, etc. That suggests to me that Americans may very well just be guinea pigs for our preferred uh, vaccine. How many countries did you say were part of that, that world group? 172 nations have signed on. We're just alone then, right? So, Well, of the, of the major manufacturers, yeah, we're hanging out in the wind. But I would uh, say that two countries have already decided to go ahead and bypass phase three trials and poke their populations in the arms. That's China and Russia. Oh, okay. Well, um, Hmm. I don't trust China or Russia for some reason. Is that is that wrong? Anybody? Well, anyway, uh, how, how safe does a vaccine have to be before before you take it? If you have a thousand people a day dying and you can reduce that by 50 percent a day and there would be a small risk to some of the people who took it. Naturally, um, it would make sense to, to do that on as accelerated basis as possible. Of course. And, you know, again, I keep trying to draw the distinction between what our scientists are doing and what our politicians are doing, because scientists accelerating to learn as much as possible and generate the data to figure out um, that risk reward trade off and FDA staff trying to get that done as quickly as possible. We should celebrate how quickly we're doing this. There's nothing magical about having this done by November 1st, except for the election. And so if we can be much more certain what we're doing in another two weeks or month or two months or three months. I think that people have a right to be concerned about the money and the profit and who's going to get what, knowing Trump the way we do. How, how much is profit and who's going to get selected, et cetera, a fear, you know, dealing with this administration and this president? The reason you asked the question is because uh, we've been trained that those are things to watch out for and to be concerned about and to question motivation. And so whatever the reason, whatever the motivation, I think it's too hard for the public to sort all that stuff out. And so instead, what I would suggest is we need an incredibly transparent process where the data can be seen and viewed and opined upon by independent scientists and legitimate scientists who put their name behind it and um, you know, you ask the question to, to, to Lori, would you take the vaccine on November 1st? You know, I think your answer is probably, I don't want to, but where's my probably because I think she finds it impossible that that data would be uh, available by then and it feels forced fit. But at some point in time, Americans will see that data and we will want to take the vaccine. We ought to be careful also not to react uh, against what Trump is doing, which is clearly political to the point where we create more vaccine hesitancy in this country than we really need. To take this one case we have right now at Oxford AstraZeneca, you know, there may be uh, effects like this in one out of every 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 people. That's, that's an acceptable risk if it's disclosed and if it's understood and if it's weighed against the benefits and if it's done in the light of day. So we shouldn't be afraid of understanding the data and having scientists tell us what their recommendations are. We just need to keep politics out of it. And that is just not going to happen, quite honestly, you know, in the next 60 days. The way things are stacking up now with the combination of the anti-vaccine movement that's longstanding and has been out there for a while, but has had alignment with certain other political forces of late, including elements of the Trump administration, if that continues to grow, uh, and all signs are that it is, 
it almost doesn't matter who is elected on November 3rd, president of the United States, or whatever date we finish the vote count. One side or the other could manipulate the situation. So, for example, even if uh, Joe Biden is elected president, then I could imagine a scenario where sometime in next January or February, reasonable testing is completed. An FDA that is not under White House pressure and is operating on its old-fashioned good principles of science says this looks like a safe vaccine, this we recommend. Then the Trump-aligned anti-vaccine forces would go into high gear and start a massive disinformation campaign and do everything they can to undermine public faith and trust in that vaccine. And the reverse, I think, is also the case, not in quite as Machiavellian a sense, but certainly uh, all surveys show Democrats right now are less trusting of a Trump administration-approved vaccine than our Republicans. So here we go down the road, where yet another tool in the public health toolkit has been so deeply politicized that it will be undermined, utilized, or believed based on party affiliation. This is what happens when you have a president who completely undermines any confidence in anything that anybody says in in truth. This is a guy who will say anything that has created an atmosphere where no one trusts anything anymore, that he he lies all the time and he has divided people and he's actually kind of destroyed any kind of trust in anything. And people are going to continue to die because of it, no matter who wins. That's pretty much what you're saying. If Joe Biden wins and the vaccine reaches a point where it's recommended to be taken, and all the Trump supporters say, hey, wait a minute, I'm crying foul. I'm, you know, there's already, as she says, aligned to the anti-vax movement. If you have large numbers of people, 50% of the people uh, who say, I'm not taking the vaccine for one reason or another, then COVID-19 is with us for a lot longer because it will circulate a lot longer. If, on the other hand, Trump is reelected and the Democrats say, we're not going to take the vaccine, you have the same exact phenomenon. Imagine then... Um, the next time you take your kids for the measles vaccine or the influenza vaccine or there's another bug and people say, well, you know what, last time around this process was so politically polluted that I'm just going to take my chances. So, so this is like a global warming type of scenario where the president's kind of political marketing populism instincts get us in a, a generational level of destruction potentially, of some of the things that that we really count on as a modern society. You know, let me put this in perspective. In 1947, America being triumphant in World War II and truly believing in the powers of good government, because good government had pulled America out of the Great Depression and won World War II. In 1947, a tourist came to New York City, unknowingly carrying smallpox, and went to every tourist site all across Manhattan and then died of smallpox, having infected several people. At that time, the health commissioner of New York City was a popular woman who had a regular radio show where she informed the the New York people about health issues they should be concerned about. She went on her radio show and said, we are corralling every single dose of smallpox vaccine we can find in all of the United States. And we want all 6 million New Yorkers to get vaccinated, even if you got vaccinated before, because smallpox is here in the city and we need to stop it. And within less than a week, the majority of, of the population of New York City had put out their arms and stood in lines organized by the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts of America and gotten vaccinated. And they saved the day. And we did not have a smallpox outbreak in America. We could not achieve that today. It could literally be as dire as smallpox. And today's political environment, we would never get 6 million people to stick their arms out for a smallpox immunization scratch. There would be conspiracies. There would be claims that it's not really smallpox vaccine. It's X. It's Y. It's something that will sterilize you. It's something that will make you not believe in God anymore. I actually have heard that claim 
that there's something in the vaccines that will make you stop believing in God, or it will turn you into a homosexual, or it will do this, or it will do that. And you go through the list. We are in a situation that is almost existential for the basic tenets and purposes of public health as a mission. And when you have a a leadership in the country too timid and scared to stand up to the president and say, you lie, dude, shut up, get out of the way. Lives are at stake. The result is that the every single institution, because they're all government employees, by definition, public health is government executed, they all just begin to, to muzzle, to self, self-censor. You have seen all over the country, commissioners of health who tried to stand up to their mayor or their governor have been fired since COVID appeared. We've seen almost a, a anti-public health insurgency taking place. And I honestly believe that so much damage has been done that whoever is elected president of the United States next, and whatever the balance may end up being in the Senate and the House after all the votes are counted, we're still going to be in deep trouble trying to get some sense of collective responsible belief in science and in the proof of evidence. It's hard to fathom the damage that has been done to this country in the last three and a half years, really, just in that regard, just in what we agree on in terms of what are facts. That has completely, completely gone away. You pick a president, you pick a mistake, how long will we be paying for our adventures in Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan, and in right after 9-11. I think about all the things we'll be potentially paying for, for a long time. And that's, that's more concerning than anything. And that's why I think people like us would all say, hey, if it takes another month to do it right, do it right. If it takes a year to build back our confidence in the FDA, and CDC, we've got to figure out how to do that. To me, it puts a little bit of a mandate on Biden, if he were to win, to figure out how to govern this country in a way that breaks down some of these um, reflexive barriers where um, you, you just have a gut reflexive view based upon political party. And it's fine to do that for things that are political, politically philosophically different. It's not okay to be in a space as Lori pointed out, where uh, we have half the country that won't do what is important for 100% of the country. And how predictable is it if Biden wins that there'll be this vested interest in, in his failure and America's failure from the 40% or whatever it is who just believe Donald Trump and Is Donald Trump going to lead a resistance? This will put a lot of pressure on Biden's leadership. You know, in my conversations with the campaign over the last few weeks, I think they've been going through fits, as you would normally do when you have an opponent who lies. And most importantly, my advice to the campaign has been Biden ought to act the way he would if he were president. He ought to say people's lives are more important than this election, if that's what he believes, and I think it is. He ought to not uh, come across as in any way as contributing to the distrust of the vaccine. He ought to not lose the election uh, because of it, but he ought not to confuse uh, the public any, any further because that's what a good president would naturally be doing. It's a hard line to ride. It is uh, almost an impossible line to ride because no matter what you do, there is very, very good reason to believe that Trump only cares about his reelection. Of course, of course, of course, right? There's a very, very good chance that he will announce a vaccine before November 3rd, and that there's a very good chance that we will have very good reason not to trust it and won't know. And what do you say? You have a conundrum politically that I think you've kind of framed, whereas if he starts bad-mouthing the vaccine or he looks like he's rooting against people getting vaccinated and getting immunity to it. And I think this is 
the setup that Trump is is hoping for. I think the more controversial the decision to approve the vaccine, the better Trump thinks it is for himself. Because for most Americans, the details are hard to fathom. So all the things we've been talking about are going to be lost. What the headline will be is, I got a vaccine done, even if it's over the objection of these pointy-headed scientists, and I had to run roughshod over them. That's what I'm here for. That's my brand. And for uh, Biden to be baited into saying, well, I'm sorry, guys, process, process, process. I don't think that's a winning political place to be. Uh, and it puts Biden in that spot. But I think that there's an interesting couple of ironies here. One is, let us say that the October 22nd meeting ends up with FDA saying, um, yeah, we think this Pfizer uh, vaccine is really cool. Go ahead, start poking people in the arm. And that the states comply and they start rolling out their various distribution sites. Do you actually believe that the the hardcore MAGA followers uh, will indeed line up with their sleeves rolled up? I don't, because they, first of all, overlap very heavily with the general anti-vaccine movement. And secondly, their own propaganda is already full of conspiracy theories about every one of these vaccine makers. So I think the only way Trump gets the photo op with 2,000 people stretched down the block with their MAGA hats on and American flags waiting to get vaccinated 24 hours before the national election. I think the only way he gets that photo op is if he first goes on live national television and lets them film him getting vaccinated and line up Ivanka and have her vaccinated live on national television. That is, by the way, not outrageous. That's precisely what Gerald Ford did in order to get people to go along with the swine flu vaccine in 1976. But Gerald Ford actually was vaccinated with the swine flu vaccine. Do you think uh, Trump would actually be inoculated with the, Oh, his you're vaccine? suspecting that, that he would take a placebo? <laughs> well, he loves placebo, you see, because after hydroxychloroquine, he for a moment there, he was going like, you know what's a great drug I hear? It's placebo because it's been in every trial. It's been used in every <laughs> trial. And uh, a lot of people say it really it really worked for them. Well, because it's used as the comparator, so it must be good. Yeah. I mean, it, it's in every trial, this drug, placebo. And I hear that people really think it works. You know, there's another, not to take anything away from your uh, uh, point on placebo, but there's another point <laughs> here that I, I think there's a, there's a racial dimension to this that we ought to be aware of. There is a very sad history, obviously, in this country of using uh, racial minorities uh, as experiments in vaccines. And, you know, there are a number of people who, for good reasons, are saying maybe people of color ought to be prioritized in getting this vaccine uh, because they have higher fatality rates. But you can imagine a circumstance under which Trump says, hey, let's give it to the black and brown people because I want to really show that that's the kind of guy I am. And he will have not, would not have established trust in the vaccine. And the damage that that could do to, to, to open up those wounds and turn a whole other set of people against vaccines um, is something I worry about. I don't know that, nice know. wrinkle, Andy. I hope the president is listening to this. Jesus. Okay. Well, actually, it's getting worse I mean, as we go. Okay. If you want to talk about cognitive dissonance, there was the very same day that um, uh, we had the FDA indicating that it might go along with rushing the vaccine through with a target of uh, November 1st distribution. That very same day, uh, the National Academy of Sciences convened public hearings on its proposal for how to improve access to a, a vaccine when it is safe and available uh, for indigenous peoples, native peoples, um, African-Americans, Latinos, and so on. In other words, here we had on the one hand, imagining a product that everybody's going to clamor for. How do you make sure that it's equitably available across all ethnic and racial groups in America? And over here, we had 
oh, we're not even going to worry whether it's really safe and so on. We're just going to shove it down the pipeline. So one scenario could play out, uh, you know, to a kind of a huge racial debate about who's at the front of the line. And the other scenario could play out to, hey, this is Tuskegee all over again. Okay. Um, anything, can we get any uglier? Uh, is, is there an uglier dimension to this than I, we haven't thought of yet? We're going to get about 50 days uglier. I mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a yeah, dark sense think- of humor, Lori. You should know that. Yeah. I don't think I don't think we've seen anything yet. I mean, I try to imagine how ugly it can get, and I find myself only concluding that my imagination will look woefully inadequate um, relative to the stuff that actually is going to happen probably in the next sixty days. You know, I I know your imagination. I I agree. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, well, uh, you know, thanks, thanks. Thank. You know, part of the reason I do this podcast is to, you know, give a little sunshine to people, cheer them up. That's what we've done today, certainly. I can tell you one thing that if I had the ear of uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden would be on, on at the top of my list of recommendations. Right now, we have uh, overwhelming evidence that the COVID disease is not a respiratory disease as it initially presented as pneumonia. Yes, people get pneumonia, but the real disease process is cardiovascular. And the cells that this virus nefariously destroys are crucial cells for the appropriate functioning of your heart and of the distribution properly of blood throughout your body. And organ after organ, all the way down to your kidneys, suffers because Uh, this essential circulatory function is impaired. We now know that explains why. The highest risk association with going on to get severe disease if you're infected is a history of untreated hypertension. And you know, hypertension is the great silent disease. Nobody knows they have hypertension unless they routinely see a physician and get cuffed. They don't know it until they have a major cardiac event. It doesn't present with any obvious symptoms along the way. Well, as a result, if we were to re-envision how we conduct testing and how we tackle COVID to take a true public health intervention approach, everybody approaching a physician or uh, a testing center would first get cuffed. And if they come up with high blood pressure, they would be diverted off to a line where they would be told, guess what? We can treat this and it's cheap and it's easy. And here's free medicine to start you off. Here's your first workup appointment with a cardiologist because this is really high risk. And next we're going to send you to this line where we give you a quick pinprick and we do a quick blood test. And if you have high blood glucose, you're at risk for diabetes. So we're going to send you over to this line where you're going to be sent off for free treatment to work you up for diabetes and you're going to get nutrition education and so on. Now that you've had that, now you can have your COVID test. If we can begin to couple the underlying disease associations and tackle the cheap, low-hanging fruit of public health that are the major causes of death and that are why we see a racial distribution in death and mortality associated with lack of appropriate access to healthcare plus dietary issues. If we can get to the bottom of that, we can not only be tackling COVID, but we could dramatically reduce the burden of death from these two categories of illness. I want to live in that country. This is something that you, Andy, have very assiduously worked toward. This is almost your life's work, is getting us to universal health care. That's what you do now. That's your main focus of your work. And that's what the Affordable Care Act was about, was getting more people doctors, getting more people. Medicaid expansion has meant that so many more people go to a doctor and get cuffed and get blood tests. That's uh, something beneath all of this, 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 this subject. Al, let me let me just throw one thing 
right directly to Andy because, you know, you know the political shenanigans behind a lot of this much better than anybody else I know. One of the things that we're seeing now associated with this push for testing, and this would be a place where I blame the Democrats for, for not thinking through clearly what they were saying when they were shouting, testing, 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 testing for what, how, where, and when, is that city after city, including my town here, New York City, have started to uh, devalue their public health departments, devalue the uh, necessity to have guided epidemiologically thought out testing that really gives you reasonable information. And by the way, might couple it with such things as I had suggested about hypertension and diabetes. And instead, they're privatizing everything. They throw it all to the hospital sector. They throw it all to organized medicine. Well, organized medicine is not about population health. Organized medicine is about individuals' health. And most of the hospitals that it's getting thrown to are, you know, operate on pretty high profit margins. And they're turning testing into a function that's utterly divorced from public health, completely divorced. It's an individualistic function in which you as an individual feel safer because you underwent a test, though you don't even know the difference between an antigen test, an antibody test, a nucleic acid test, and what the information means. And I actually, you know, I've chronicled hundreds of epidemics and outbreaks throughout history around the world. I've personally been in more than 30 epidemics, and I have consistently seen this tension emerge where organized medicine and medical corporations come up against public health and squash public health. You know, if there's one point where the Democrats could make themselves very, very, very different on COVID and other issues from the Republicans, it would be to once again show respect, show just decent respect for the institution of public health and how that is different from individual medical care and clinical medicine. Yeah, she's exactly right. We we spend about call it ten thousand dollars on people's health care, and we spend uh, something like fifty to sixty dollars across the country on public health. That is so out of whack and so out of balance that we're going to get sicker and sicker. And of course, we're doing this in a country that increasingly cares more about themselves than about others. And so this this escalates uh, the importance here. And and look, the 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 thing is, we really need both public health and primary care. The one thing we know is that people who have a regular source of primary care for a sustaining period, like three, four, five years, see dramatic improvements in their health and reductions in the cost of their health care. People who don't are in worse situations. So what I love about what Lori's saying is we have a teachable moment right now. What if we took advantage of that teachable moment to say, okay, we're going to get you a safe vaccine, and in the process, we're going to connect you to the healthcare system in ways that are going to keep you healthy, uh, that it's going to be much, much lower cost, and, and we're going to move this country, we're going to turn this negative into something that's, that's a positive. Our country was once capable of doing stuff like that. Places around the world, other countries, are very capable of doing stuff like that. The test is whether or not we still are. Well, guys, um, what you're asking for, you know, my first instinct is, well, that's not going to happen. But it could, but only uh, if we have a real change in this election, obviously. Thank you, both of you. Uh, This has been a terrific discussion, and I'm going to, when we edit it, take myself out as much as possible. Thank you, Al. Thanks, Al. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, Lori. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today join me dj and my trusty turntable baby scratch as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast once upon a beat wondry and tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet it's once upon a beat follow once upon a beat on the wondry app or wherever you get your podcast you can listen to once upon a beat early and ad free right now by joining wondry plus in the wondry app or wondry kids plus in apple Podcasts. once upon a beat